The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. In line with how the video ended, as one of your needy pastors, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Father God, we are more needy than we realize. And it's a gift that our former senior pastor with books beyond number would remain in that frame of mind. It's your miracle. We want to ask that for ourselves and for our church. And we want to come to you again, more needy than we realize, for your word to affect our hearts, to give us a vision of your gospel expansion that we didn't have before we walked in here, to kindle faith that we desperately need, to reach others, to spread. God, you are enthroned in the heavens. Jesus, you are seated at the right hand of your Father, building your kingdom. Do that among us in these places, those that are watching and those that are here. And do that around us in our spheres of influence. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you had a chance to at least look out a window yesterday, if not to walk outside and see the glorious spring. I got to go on a walk with my wife and our dogs, and we saw all sorts of signs of new life, of spring. Which one of those causes your heart to rejoice the most? Is it the lilacs, which maybe aren't quite there yet, and smelling that? Is it the buds on the trees? Is it new green life coming out of the ground? For some of you, I know it's starting up the lawnmower. For the rest of us, they're like, oh, as long as I can wait, please, not yet. This text is a sign of a season change. The first bud on the fruit tree of the gospel expansion to the ends of the earth. And if we don't pay close attention, we'll miss it. And Luke has purposefully slowed down to show that this is a season changing. And just like yesterday, we should get out and rejoice. We should rejoice in it. So let me explain. Let me set the stage a little bit. We are in a study in the book of Acts. And Acts began in a very, very, very important place. If we miss this, we will miss Luke's purpose here. He said, in my former book, which is the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I wrote to you all that Jesus began to do and teach. And if we miss that, we'll miss everything. Because this text is not about Philip. It is about Philip. But it's about Jesus. So I want you to look very carefully. Keep your Bibles open and keep looking for Jesus. Because he's the one that's going to continue to do and teach. And he gave his expansion plan, which helps us understand where this text fits, in Acts 1.8 where he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. It's like a dot on the map. And Judea, Samaria, the surrounding regions, and then to the ends of the earth. This text is the first bud 
on the gospel fruit tree of the ends of the earth. And it's just a hint. It fits in between this gospel expansion. And Luke wants us to see it and to be encouraged. So we're going to dive in, but let me just give you a little bit of lay of the land. This text has four scenes. And in each one, there's a key question that points us to the, the thing that Luke wants us most to see. So kids, you can look for the question mark. You can look for the questions. Pay attention to that in four different scenes. The first one's implied, though, so you kind of have to listen to me at the beginning. But then you can watch for the, for the real question marks right in the text. But it's, it's, it's really there. He wants us to see beautiful things about how Jesus uses his people empowered by the Spirit to expand the gospel. Four scenes. Let's begin in scene one, which starts in verse 26 to 28. Now the angel of the Lord. We can't even get the first few verses, the first few words in without seeing. This is about Jesus. Don't let that pass you by. Oh, another angel. This is a messenger of the one who is enthroned in heaven, and he is sending his messenger, his person, his servant, Philip, on a very strange mission. That's where the question is going to come in. What did he say to Philip? Oh, wait a second. Who's Philip? Philip, in chapter 6, was one of the seven men who was chosen as full of the Holy Spirit and a worthy man to care for the widow's needs. They were being neglected. And later, when Stephen's persecution sent people out into Judea, Samaria, he was one that went about spreading the gospel, speaking the gospel to anyone he ran into, and he was just in a city of Samaria. And much fruit was born there. That's the Philip. He said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. If you keep reading in the book of Acts, you'll run into Philip again in chapter 21. And he is called Philip the Evangelist. So here's question number one. Why would you send your evangelist, Jesus, to a desert place, a.k.a. uninhabited. If you're a baseball manager, why would you take your best home run hitter and assign him to the hot dog stand? Or so it seems. This text wants to expand our vision and see that sometimes what we think is strategic is different from what Jesus thinks is strategic. What does Philip do? He rose and went. Those words are identical, identical in the original language to the words that the angel of the Lord said to him. Precise obedience. So we we need to stop for a second and say, we don't have angels speaking to us on a regular basis, but we have God's very word. What is his spirit drawing your attention to in these days? And how could your obedience be described? Is it precise? Is it in line with his words? Could it be described with his very words? If not, right now we should say, Father, forgive me. 
And we should go to others and say, pray for me that I would be walking in line with God's very words. It goes on and gives us the answer to this perplexing question, why send your evangelist to an uninhabited place? It says, and, and then in the original language, there's actually a word that's not translated for us, behold, which means, see, look, notice. There was a man, an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and it goes on and gives us a sevenfold description of this man. Luke wants us to know about this man, wants us to see and understand who this man was. So let's just look at that description really quick. First, he was an Ethiopian. Now, you need to understand, this is not our modern-day Ethiopia, which is very close to the Horn of Africa. This was the biblical nation which starts in Genesis and continues on, the nation of Cush. It's a kingdom just south of Egypt in modern-day Sudan. It will be important later for us to understand that this man in biblical language was a foreigner. Okay? He was an Ethiopian. We probably got that just from the Ethiopian part, whichever Ethiopia we thought it was. Second, he's a eunuch. Now that's maybe a throwaway detail, but not to Luke. He uses that word five times in this text, and this is perhaps the most significant detail about this man in this text. You need to know that his body was not whole, and that was either due to an accident, due to the worship of false gods, or probably, in this man's case, because he served a queen. And that's what we learn next. He was a court official of the queen of the Ethiopians and was in charge of all of her treasure. Talk about a trusted man. How many people do you give your bank account numbers to? It goes on not only to talk about the outward signs of him, but also his heart. So notice these details. This is how biblical authors write. They tell us details about their characters so that we can understand things about them. The first thing we need to know is that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And you need to understand that because this man was a eunuch, he was not allowed into the full worship of proselyte Jews. He was prevented. He probably worshiped in the court of the Gentiles. Because in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, it says, No one, and it goes on to describe those who are eunuchs, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. It's a significant detail that he was a eunuch and that he went to Jerusalem even when he couldn't fully participate in their worship. We see some beautiful things about this man's heart. And finally, we learn a few more things. He was returning going from Jerusalem back down to his domain, seated in a chariot, not quite a limo, but sort of like somebody was driving him in this rather large chariot. And what was he doing? He was reading the prophet Isaiah. We also need to climb into their world and understand that too. He didn't download the ESV app from the app store. He didn't swing by the Bethlehem bookstore on his way out of town to pick up a Bible. He had to have this copied for him. This was a very pricey thing, probably mostly hanging out those scrolls would in places of worship and study. This man has his own personal copy of Isaiah, and that is going to be a beautiful thing. That is a providential gift from Jesus Christ. 
That's scene one. Why did he end up there? Because Jesus had a plan to connect his servant with this man in the middle of nowhere. So what happens in the middle of nowhere? Scene two, verse 29 to 31. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Now we don't know, was the chariot at some distance? Was it still moving? Or was Philip just extremely enthusiastic about his obedience? Or maybe all three. But whatever it was, he ran to him and he didn't know the detail that he was reading Isaiah. So he gets close and he's probably like, praise the Lord. He's reading the book of Isaiah. So what would you do in that circumstance? What would you do? You're at the Mall of America. You're waiting for your kids in this very, very, very long line at the Lego store. And you happen to overhear somebody reading the book of the Bible. What would you do? Well, he asks a question. He says, do you understand what you're reading? What a beautiful question. What a beautiful question. And even more, what a humble and amazing response. And he, that is the eunuch, said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. That's an amazing opportunity orchestrated by the Lord. Do you have a category for that? Do you have a category that you, potentially a believer who's lived at Bethlehem or grown up at Bethlehem or spent time at Bethlehem or spent time in the church for a long time, maybe you've read several of the books that are on that table so you have to actually carefully choose which one because you've read most of them? Do you realize that you, believer, can be a guide? Do you know the biblical illiteracy that surrounds you. Our culture is becoming more and more and more biblically illiterate. Do you recognize that even in the Bible study that you attend at Bethlehem, there could be a new believer that you would have the privilege of being a guide for? Is your evangelism big enough That it's not just getting core gospel truths. And it's not less than that. Please do not hear me incorrectly. But it's big enough and robust enough for you to be in God's living and active word with the lost person. That is a privilege. They will help you just as much as you will help them. And we'll see in just a second the question that he asks about this text. But my question for you is, is your vision of serving others big enough to include that? Perhaps right now you should be praying in your heart, God, give me somebody that I can get into your book with for the sake of your kingdom expansion. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Scene three, the scriptures 
point to Jesus. Look at verse 32 through 35 with me. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. And again, we should just continually be amazed by this historical account that Jesus wrote and is now telling us about. Look at what he's reading about. Have you ever read Isaiah? That's some tough sledding. And this man ends up in these verses. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. That's talking about Jesus. We'll get there in just a second, but let's look at this whole scene first. And the eunuch said to Philip, I mean, it just keeps getting better. About whom? He wasn't like, well, tell me about this injustice. Or uh, why does he use sheep? He says, tell me about whom? Tell me about the he. Tell me about the guy in this text. I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? What a wonderful question. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. There's a lot here. Let me first say this, and I want to also point out something in verse 35, but let me first say this. In Colossians 4, verse 3, there's a prayer. Paul the, the ever-expanding gospel guy says, pray for me that God would open a door that I might declare the mystery of Christ. Have you ever prayed that? You should. You should write it in your prayer journal. You should put it on a card and stick it on your mirror because Jesus answers prayers like that. He did right here. Look at this is a perfect open door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. And what's more, look at verse 35. This is a really strange detail. And Luke, does it, he's, he's just a wonderful author. He's also a doctor. So why in the world did he say Philip opened his mouth? <laughs> Have you ever tried to talk to somebody with your mouth closed? Why would he say that? Now, I'm just going to give you my opinion. I'm not sure, but I have some ideas. And you can check it in the text. That's where you should go for your authority. Check it in the text. But I think what he's doing here again is Philip did one thing and God was doing something all over it. What Philip did was open his mouth. You see, the followers of Jesus often think it's completely up to them to speak for Jesus. And that's not the case. We are to open our mouths. We will be as witnesses when the Holy Spirit's power comes upon us, he makes us his witnesses. He is with us to the end of the age. You are not alone. Don't believe lies. Don't believe the lies when you walk up to this opportunity. You're like, how could I ever say anything helpful? Well, open your mouth and let the Holy Spirit move through you. When God opens a door, stick the word in it. And that's what he does. Beginning this, 
with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You also need to understand that this word beginning and that final phrase of verse 35 is an arrow pointing back to Luke 24, verse 27. And Luke 24, 27, we read this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is Jesus on the road to Emmaus who began with all the scriptures. But this is a pattern exactly similar. There's five words of parallel, five exact words that correlate between this, that passage and this passage. It's showing us that Jesus makes his followers like himself. And this same teaching probably spilled down to Philip, and he was able, because of the teaching of Jesus, to connect all the dots and with the help of the Spirit to be a witness for Christ. Again, this is Jesus building him, his church through his servants by the power of the Spirit. This is not human achievement. This is divine building, divine kingdom building. This is Jesus on the move. So before we move on to the next scene, let's just take a look at that beautiful text in Isaiah. We don't know. It doesn't tell us what Philip said, but let's just look at it really quickly. Back to verse 32. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. You need to know that that he is Jesus Christ. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Think about Christ. Think about how in his trial, in his time before Pilate, they could not get him to defend himself. He was fulfilling this text in his humiliation. Just think about the humiliation of Jesus Christ again and again and again. And there's so many right answers to his humiliation. He was captured in a garden. He had his beard pulled out. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was scourged. Scourged. He was draped with a cloak and then had it ripped off of him. He had a crown of thorns placed on his head. He was presented before the people. He had to carry his own cross and couldn't. So he had to stumble behind the other person who was. He was placed, exposed on a cross while many reviled him. Our God was humiliated. Justice was denied him. Yikes. Pilate himself said to the chief priests and the crowds in Luke 23, 3, I find no guilt in this man. When the judge proclaims, I find no guilt, something's messed up with the justice as he moves towards execution. Justice was denied him. His life was taken from the earth. We know because a centurion was there, a professional killer for the government to execute people was there and witnessed Jesus breathe his last. Even that man said he was innocent. 
That's what this text is about. But I can also imagine Philip saying, let's just look up a couple more verses, lines, um, in Isaiah 53 to answer the question, why? Why was Jesus led like a sheep to be slaughtered? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You see, the temple worship Ethiopian eunuch that you couldn't even witness was not sufficient. All these lambs being led in to be slaughtered, they weren't enough. God himself needed to take on flesh and live a perfect life. Die upon a cross. Be the sacrificial lamb for us so that the chastisement that we deserve as rebels all the time against God would be placed upon him. Do you have scriptures that you can go to that you can speak of Jesus Christ that cause your heart to burn, that are fresh? If not, ask him for something new. Ask him to direct you in whatever text you're in to beautiful truths about himself that you can share with other believers and you can share with the lost around you. And pray for open doors because he gives them. We actually get to the greatest part of this text next, scene four. Scene four. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. Now, there is so much God in his kindness helped me see new and fresh things. And I'll remind you, saints, you might know this text, but this word, this Bible is deep. Keep going back to it and seeing beautiful things. There are beautiful new things that I had not seen before in this text. Notice what's repeated. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. This is the second behold in the text. Luke wants us to see water. And there's an exclamation point, and it's repeating it. Why in the world does he want us to see water? Maybe because it's a desert place. Maybe because it's uninhabited. I think there's more. And we learn about it from the question. Look at what the question says. What prevents me from being baptized? Why would the eunuch say that? If, if you notice the little footnote there, and if you're paying close attention, and if you're sort of a math wizard, you'll notice that 36, 38 doesn't come after 36. Something's missing there. There's actually a verse 37. That question must have perplexed the people that were copying this, so they added various versions to try to answer the question. Well, of course, just believe in Jesus, and you can be baptized. But that's not what Luke wrote. Luke wanted us to stumble over this question. Why is he talking about being prevented from being baptized? We're like, come on! You're believing in Jesus Christ? There's water. We need to climb into this man's life and situation, put on his sandals, and remember all that prevented him from true and full worship of Jesus Christ. Remember, this man was a eunuch in his nation, he had full access to the treasures of his queen. Yet, 
in the nation of Israel, he was kept out in the court of the Gentiles. And in fact, all the Jewish people were kept out of the Holy Holies, the very presence of God. And what does baptism symbolize? Union with Jesus Christ. We proclaim outwardly that we are dying with Jesus. His death is our death. And we are rising again. His new life is our new resurrection life. We are united to him. What's hindering that? Nothing. And that's the point. He was very prevented from God Yahweh. And now God Yahweh came in the flesh, died for him, and is seeking him, drawing him to himself. And the message that he wants to say is, nothing is preventing you from intimacy with me. Let me just pause here and say, may God expand our vision of evangelism here as well. There are so many barriers for those around us. Intellectual barriers. New atheism and things like that. There's relational barriers. If I come to Christ, everyone in my community will reject me. There are religious barriers, all sorts of works righteousness. What? Faith? There's so many barriers. We need to pray maybe afresh for our befriending initiatives, the people around us. God, show me the barriers in their life and then show me in your word how to tear them down because you do. During Global Focus, Ashfan Zifat was down at the downtown campus and doing a seminar and he talked about his story. He was a teenager growing up in uh, America, I believe, um, but he grew up in a Muslim family and there was a major relational barrier. His family, when he came to Christ, he didn't want to let them know and he kind of kept it on the DL. And when his dad found out he was rejected by his father. And very shortly after, I believe moments, minutes later, he went back up into his room, opened his Bible, and Jesus, in his powerful, barrier-breaking word, brought him to the very text that said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to set the members of that same household against one another. And he was like, whoa! This book is for me. This book is alive. This God is real. In the midst of super difficulty, God was tearing down a barrier and saying, this is how I've orchestrated it. This is how I've set it up. The people around you have barriers. Even we in the church have barriers of shame and things like that. May God use us and use his word to tear down barriers. We need to pray for that ability. So the answer to this question, what prevents me from being baptized, is not listed because the answer is nothing. The answer is silence. Oh, let me give you all the reasons— And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. 
one of the main things that prevented him in Judaism from full ex- connection with the Lord. It mentions two more times in this text. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So there was nothing that was preventing him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now you need to understand, again, it's so amazing that he had this scroll of Isaiah. The reason that he went away rejoicing was not just that Jesus had sought him and captured him, but because he was a fulfillment, the first fulfillment, the first bud on the fruit tree of the gospel expansion to the ends of the earth, he was a fulfillment of Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. You can study this passage later on your own, on your own if you like. But I'll just read you some phrases and let them cause your heart to rejoice. They say, let not the foreigner, that's who this man was, who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord has surely separate, will surely separate me from his people. Let him not say that. There's full inclusion. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This man was not able to have a lineage, and yet he was going down to Ethiopia to have a spiritual lineage. He received the gospel. He received robust instruction from the word from Philip, and he was going forth to spread the gospel. And the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord, which this man did by faith, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Now this man leaves rejoicing. There's no longer a house of prayer in Jerusalem because it's not on this mountain or that mountain, Jesus said in John 4. But my worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. This man in his chariot being driven by some other guy is rejoicing, worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. He is now indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Lord God, and this is where the title of the sermon comes from, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather. Notice that's not Philip will gather. Our seminary professors will gather. Just get them in the doors and our pastors will gather. I, the sovereign Lord of the universe, will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That's our call. Jesus wants to use you to gather others. And we are a fruit of that. This was the first. We are the fruit. The text closes up in verse 40 and just kind of wraps the story up and shows us a little bit more where this fits into the overall picture of Acts. But Philip found himself at Azotus, however you say that place, and he passed through, preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. If you had a map in your head, you just have the Mediterranean Sea on one side, and he started at the bottom and zigzagged his way up, preaching the gospel all the way until he got to the top, all the way through Judea and Samaria. So that's where this is fixed. It's in the middle. It's an appetizer for the meal to come of Jesus spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the first bud on the fruit tree of gospel expanding. So what are we to do with this? For those of you not yet believing, 
I want to make very clear. Jesus desires for you to come to him by faith. Repent and believe the good news. Come to this phenomenal seeking Jesus. How is he seeking you? Look, see, do you need guides? We want to guide you. We want to help you so that you too would rejoice in a God who gathers. Repent and believe the gospel. And for those of us who are believing, take some time this week and reflect on your story. How did Jesus orchestrate phenomenal things to show his precise calling of you? And let's take fresh courage from this text as gospel witnesses, because that's what God wants to do. Take fresh courage. You are not alone in this spreading work. You're not alone. Take fresh courage by asking God to open doors and then look for them. Ask him to lead you. And also pray that you would see barriers of those around you. You can serve, that you can know them, that you can pray for them. You can seek to find things in your word that would tear those barriers down. That they may believe and have true fellowship with Christ. It's not an easy thing to become a believer. There are consequences. There are costs to be counted. And we can be God's servants to help people with those realities. Please pray with me in line with that. Father God, thank you for this text. Thank you that you are the one that seeks and saves the lost. And thank you that you get to draw us into it. Would you be at work in Bible studies and coffees before work and times of prayer where we call out for the houses around us and say, God, show me the barriers. Give me open doors for the gospel. Students with peers and sports teams and God, would you be at work? God, would you be at work amongst some here who are hearing to believe the gospel for the first time? Thank you that you are such a wonderful God who is like the Lord Almighty. Would you meet us as we move to the table? Would you fill us with your spirit this week to be your messengers? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 720- 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.